As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up, turn it on. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Question for you. How many of you are traveling for Christmas time? How many of you are traveling this season at Christmas? Well, not as many as I thought there would be. That's, that's good, I guess. That means you'll be here next week for Christmas Eve, right? You know, travel is a big part of the Christmas story. You have Mary and Joseph that leave home to travel to Bethlehem. You have the shepherds that leave their flocks to travel to the empty or to the manger. You have the wise men that, that leave their home to follow the star. You have Jesus who leaves home to take on flesh and, as the Bible says, tabern- tabernacle or live amongst us. Now, the best thing about traveling is what? When... When you get there, that's right. The best thing about traveling is whenever you arrive. There, there is nothing like it whenever you uh, knock on the door and your mom answers it and you're like, hey, I'm here, and then everybody hugs and it's just a wonderful, wonderful time. Now, sometimes the journey can be a bit treacherous. I always remember at Christmas time when I was coming home from college one year and right around Durant, Oklahoma, I get in a major ice storm and I am slipping and sliding all over the highway and I wasn't sure if I was going to make it or not. I think the last few hours I had to drive 20 miles per hour all the way to my parents' house and whenever they opened the door, it was so exciting to be home for Christmas. We're in this series here in Luke chapter 15 that we've been calling Reconnected. And there's three parables that Jesus tells here. You have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, sometimes called the prodigal son. Now, in each of these parables, something is lost. And then there is a season of pain. There's a season of difficulty when people are going through real life and they are struggling and they are trying to get there. And then there is this moment where there is reconnection. When that which was lost is found, and the story celebrates, and there's literally in each parable a party that goes on, a celebration because that which was lost was found. So today we look at what is probably the most famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the lost son. This is a parable of forgiveness. It's a parable, a story of hope of family, of love, and it also deals with something that is very applicable during the Christmas season. It deals with some of the challenges of family life. Now, I know nobody in here has any challenges in your family life, right? Everybody's family's like, leave it to beaver, and it's all perfect and harmonious and no difficulties. Well, this parable causes us to wrestle with some of those challenges that we often go through in family life. So look with me, beginning in verse 11. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. And so he distributed the assets to them. So here we are introduced to the people of the parable. And you have a man, a father. We don't know what happened to the mother. Maybe she had passed away. Uh, We're not sure. But this man had two sons. 
These two boys, they grew up together. They shared a bed. They fought over the Nintendo. They would push each other's buttons and they would get onto each other and make dad stop the chariot and say, if you guys don't stop it right now, I'm going to make you wash this chariot. Uh, these two boys, they probably fished in the Jordan River together. They were brothers. They had grown up together. Well, the younger brother starts coming of age and he starts spreading his wings and exerting his independence, and he decides, I need to change some things. And so the younger brother goes on three trips. The first trip is that of entitlement. Before the father has even passed away, in fact, there's no signs here that he's even sick. But the young entitled son goes into his father and says, give me. Give me what I have coming to me. Now, can you imagine doing that to your father? Going to him and saying, I know that I have an inheritance coming to me. I want it now. Give me what I deserve. Give me what I have coming to me. Some of you fathers say, I'd give him what he has coming to him right there, right? But this father was evidently rather gracious in his spirit. And so he decides... Okay, I'll do it. And so he goes down to Charles Schwab and he liquidates a lot of his estate and he starts distributing them it to his sons. It's interesting. The Bible actually says he distributed the assets to them. He decided to give both boys their inheritance early. Well, not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered together all that he had. And he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So we see here the younger son takes a second trip, and that trip is a trip of envy. The younger son decided that he needed a new life, that the life that God had given him was not sufficient. He was tired of this little town, Murphy, Texas, where there's a chicken place on every corner. He was tired of Murphy Road Church. You know, that's my parents' church. I need to find something bigger and brighter. He was tired of Wiley High School and tired of Dad's rules and tired of the life that God had given him. And so he reasons to himself, Surely there has to be more than this. Surely I need to go out and discover my own life, and I want something different. And so perhaps he travels to the bright lights of Rome, and there he begins to gamble some of his estate at Caesar's palace. And then he travels down to Egypt, and he climbs the pyramids, and he takes a selfie from the top of the pyramids, and he then travels north, and he storms a few castles with the Vikings, and then he goes to Greece, and he parties every night with Alexander the Great. I know all the historians are short-circuiting right now because none of those paralleled in time, but anyhow, I'm just, just go with me here. He, he, he starts living a, a wild life, and, and he thought he was so, so very smart. In fact, 
He would tweet against the very values that he was raised with, and he would speak out against them, and he had abandoned church, and he had abandoned his root system, and he had abandoned, he had rejected those who truly loved him, and he had embraced those who just wanted to use him. He was desiring somebody else's life to be his. He was envious of that which he didn't have. You know, envy is an Eden sin. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. When Adam and Eve were contemplating eating the fruit, the serpent said, Eat this fruit and you will be like God. You don't have to be subservient to your maker. Eat this fruit and you yourself can be like God. And ever since, the entire world has been consumed with covetousness, with envy, wanting somebody else's appearance, somebody else's family, somebody else's money, somebody else's life. Envy will take you on a trip, and it will take you on a trip far away from God. Well, in verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country. So he spends all of his money. He spends all of his father's money, but not to fear. He's young. He's invincible. And so he can get a job. He can make new money. And he can continue his life right where he wants to live. But he didn't see this coming. A severe famine hit the country. And because of that, there were no good jobs, and ultimately, he was stuck in that country, and he had nothing. So, verse 15, he finally finds a job, and he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Oh, lovely. Feeding pigs in the field. Now, he longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating. That's how hungry he was. He wanted to eat pig slop. But he couldn't even eat the pig slop. Nobody would give him any of that. And if he were to steal it, he would probably lose the one job that he had. And so he now took a third trip, and that was a trip of isolation. The money had ran out. His entourage of friends that he had everywhere he went, they were gone. His cell phone was now shut off. There was no food. There were no jobs. Everything was gone. He was all alone. Mike Rowe hosts this job on television called uh, Dirty Jobs. Anybody ever seen that show? Uh, Apparently, several of you have. Well, he's done about over 300 different jobs on the show, and they asked him to identify what were some of the absolute worst jobs that you've done. And so he identified a few. Uh, One was a charcoal maker, where you spend all day kind of hammering burnt wood into uh, charcoal. He said by the end of the day, you were just covered in... worked with charcoal, you know, you get covered in that soot. By the end of the day, you're like covered from head to toe in charcoal soot. He said uh, 
A dirt sterilizer was a terrible job. Say, what's a dirt sterilizer? Anybody work as a dirt sterilizer? Okay, well, apparently what a dirt sterilizer does is they take crude oil out of dirt. Not a good job. You don't go to college to be a dirt sterilizer. Uh, An opal miner, he said they put you in an 80-foot hole, and uh, it's very claustrophobic, exceedingly dangerous, and dark to try to mine opals. He says it's like being two inches tall in a Coke, at the bottom of a Coke bottle. Uh, and then he said the worst one was a shark suit tester. Everybody wants to be a shark suit tester, right? Somebody's got to figure it out whether or not they can actually eat it or not. Well, I say all that because when Jesus said that this young boy got a job feeding pigs, that to the audience was a, oh, That was a repulsive idea that a young Hebrew boy would get a job feeding pigs. And the audience probably went over the top in disgust when Jesus said it was so bad, he was so hungry that he was willing to eat pig slop. The audience knew that this was the lowest of the low, that this young man could not sink any further. So we come to verse 17. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. And so he got up and went to his father. Now notice three things here. Number one, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. Because of his entitlement, because of his envy, this young man had done some really, really Foolish things. You see, when you start being covetous and chasing other people's lives and chasing things that God hasn't given to you, it will ruin your life. It will cause you to think crazy thoughts, to find yourself in positions that you never imagined. My dad, who's been a pastor for many years, likes to say, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you intended to pay. But thankfully, this young man came to his senses. Secondly, he no longer felt entitled. Instead of thinking, hey, I need my dad to give me what is mine so that I can go live my life the way I want to live it, now he was like, you know what, I I would be willing just to be one of my father's hired hands. I just need some food. I I just need to go back home. You see, he had begun to understand that the blessings that he had received were unearned. They had been given to him because of the Father's love and graciousness. Thirdly, he had a spiritual awakening. The young man realized that he had done wrong. He repented of his sin, and he admitted that he had sinned against both heaven, against God, and that he had sinned against his father. 
And so there was repentance. True change of life, true spiritual change always involves repentance. We turn from our pride, from our selfishness, from our sin, and we turn to faith. We turn to God and to His grace, His love, His sufficiency, and His reign in our lives. He had a spiritual awakening. Now, I want to remind parents and grandparents that are in the room that you are investing in kids. Every time you pray with them, every time you bring them to worship, every time you model genuine Christianity before them, you are investing in the hearts of those kids. Sometimes whenever children grow up, they begin to drift a little bit. They may make some foolish decisions along the way. They may do some things that are wrong that they know they should not do. But those investments that you have made in them as they were under your roof, they stay with those children. And sometimes isolated, alone, hurting, in the midst of the pig pen, the child comes to the senses and the lessons that they were taught, the values that were instilled within them, come back. And they decide, you know what? This isn't working. This isn't the life that I want. I want to go home. One time I was at a formal dinner and I was talking to a very, very successful couple. Both of them with earned doctorate degrees have risen to the tops of their careers. And we were having a very pleasant conversation and I innocently said, well, well, tell me about your children. And I saw their face instantly change because in their lives they had experienced the pain of their children embracing a different value system of their children chasing after things that were, were ultimately superficial and wouldn't last. And they could see that their children were going down a path that was going to be very, very painful. And yet they felt like they really couldn't change it. One of the saddest things in life is a father or a mother, a grandparent whose child has gone astray. Some in the room today can relate. And so back home, there was a dad. And night after night, the dad missed his son. Night after night, the dad would finish dinner and he would go out on the porch. And perhaps it was his habit to pray for his child and ask God to watch over him. And he longed for his child to be home. And one night, he's out there and he looks off in the horizon and he sees a familiar walk. Any parent begins to learn his child's walk. And he, sees to, he says to himself, surely that can't be. But then he looks again and he says, ah, oh, but it is. That's my son. He has, he has come home. He is here. And the Bible says in verse 20, that while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with, what's the word? Compassion. Filled with compassion. And so he ran and threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to, his, said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And right here, the father had a decision to make. How do I respond? Do I scold him? Do I send him away? You've wasted all your inheritance. You've lived in a way that you shouldn't. You just need to get out of here. I'm no longer your home. I'm no longer your father. No, the father embraced him. He loved him. He welcomed him home. I understand that sometimes love has to be tough. I understand that sometimes you have to draw boundaries. But I also encourage you, mom and dad, if you're going to err, err on the side of grace, not law. Choose compassion, not anger. This father extended grace and compassion to a son that did not deserve it. And the father here illustrates our Lord, who extends to us grace and compassion that is in no way deserved. So the father in verse 22 tells the slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger. That ring signified that he was an heir. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so, they began to celebrate. You see, whenever he sees his son and hears his sorrow, the father immediately forgives and restores. When God hears our repentance, when he hears our sorrows, when he sees the change of direction, he embraces our faith, he forgives, he restores. You know, Jesus told this story because He wanted you to know something. He wanted you to know that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long it's been, how far away you've gone, you can come home. You never are beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. The extent of the fall is the extent of the atonement. Christ outstretched His arms so that you and I might experience His salvation. And when we turn to Him, we receive the embrace of the Father. So quit trying to be God. It's not working. Return to your Father. Ask forgiveness. And know that the Father runs to meet you. He opens His arms and celebrates your return. My friends, this is the goodness of our loving Father's grace. Let it saturate your soul. God loves you to such a degree that He sent His Son to live a life that you could never live so that whenever we believe in Him, we receive a life that we could never deserve. That's grace. Now, there's a funny thing about grace, and that is that not everyone celebrates what is freely given. 
It would be easy for me to stop the sermon here. Some of you would like that a lot. But there's another part to the story that has to be dealt with. So look at verse 25. The Bible says, Now his older son was in the field. You can picture it. The older son had been out on the John Deere all day long. He was dirty. He was sweaty. He had been working hard. And now, as night begins to fall, he comes near to the house. And as he comes near to his father's quiet house, he sees the lights flickering. And he hears something that he had never heard from his father's house before. He hears music and dancing. Now, my legalistic friends are already offended. There's music and dancing going on at dad's house. That can't be. Why is George Jones playing at my father's house? And so he summons one of the servants, come on over here, and he asks him, what do these things mean? I mean, what is going on here? There's music and dancing. We're Baptist. We, we don't do that. Why are they two-stepping? Why is the Cotton Eye Joe going on? And so the servant says, well, your brother is here, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, at that point, the older brother, too, got caught in envy. He doesn't deserve that. He doesn't deserve a party. My dad knows what he's done. This isn't right. His emotions began to be filled with entitlement. I've been here. I've been here all along. I deserve the party. And he began to overflow with anger. And he acted out in immaturity. You see, when the younger brother became entitled and envious, he ran. He chased after a different life. When the older brother became overfilled with envy and entitlement, he acted out. He became immature, and he became angry. And so verse 28 says, he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. What we basically have here is a fit. This guy is throwing a fit that my two-year-old son Camden would be proud of, okay? And it gets so bad that he will not go into the house. Somebody tells the father, look, um, you might want to go out there. He's, you just might want to go out there. And so the dad goes out there. He's trying to calm his son down, and he replies to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you. Now, was he really a slave? No, he was a son. He's exaggerating here. And I have never disobeyed your orders. Can any son really say that? <laughs> really? You know, I, I, I always clean my room immediately. I've never, never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. By the way, if you're still making your Christmas list, young goat celebration just an idea okay but when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes you slaughtered 
and fattened the fattened calf for him. Basically, he's saying, Dad, I went to VBS. I went to church camp. I married Mary Ann instead of Ginger. Okay? I went to Michael W. Smith instead of Motley Crue. I, I even voted for Trump, just like you told me to. I bought a Honda instead of a Harley. And now this guy comes home and you give him all this stuff. This is not fair. You're giving him the better Christmas gifts, and you're even using the Dallas Cowboys wrapping paper that you know that I love to wrap those gifts. This just isn't right. He is throwing an absolute tantrum. Now, the younger brother was envious of other people's lives. The older brother was envious of his younger brother's life. And... He had become envious of the Father's grace. My brother doesn't deserve this. I deserve it. In church, there will sometimes be younger brothers who drift because they're envious of other people's lives. And there will also be some older brothers who throw fits because you're envious of God's grace. Here's the growth point for you. Come to the realization that you yourself do not deserve God's grace. That you yourself are who you are, not because of your good behavior, but because of the grace of God. And so the father says in verse 31, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so the father reminds him of a couple of things. Number one, you are always with me. I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. You have been with me here. You have been doing the right things, and my son, you don't have the scars. You don't have the regrets. Your brother is home, but he is going to live with the consequences of his behavior for years to come. We're throwing a party today. We are extending to him grace, but he has done some things and he has seen some things that will constantly be with him. You've been here with me. You don't have to live with those scars. And may I remind you that everything that I have is yours. There's no need for you to envy the Father's grace because He shares it with you as well. Within the story, there are three three main characters. A hurting parent, a wayward child, and a good kid. A good kid who always tried to do the right thing. Who do you relate with? Which one do you see as you in the story? To the hurting parent, 
I say don't give up. Don't ever give up. Quit pr- keep praying for that child. Keep investing in them. Keep longing for them to return back. Do not discount what you've taught them. And do not discount the power of the Holy Spirit to change their heart. And when the child returns, when the child turns and returns, choose grace. Choose grace over scorn. Embrace. Welcome. Err on the side of grace rather than law. And in so doing, you are modeling how God has treated you. To the wayward child, I would say it's time, time to come to your senses. Go home. Go home. You know that God's grace will meet you where you are. And God's grace will take you to where you should be. I remind you that Jesus told the story because he wanted you to know that no matter who you are, how far away you've gone, or what you've done, you can come home. You have not gone beyond the reach of grace. And to the good kid, you've always tried to do the right thing. You've always tried to walk in wisdom and honor your parents and make good choices. Don't be envious. Don't be envious of God's grace. Because the undeserved grace that He extends to others, He has also extended to you. And the growth point for you to move beyond anger and entitlement is to realize that Christianity is not about how good I am, but about how great God is. And that all of us stand before God as sinners in need of grace. And even the good kid, you are who you are because of the grace of God. So be excited that He's extended it to you. And be excited when God extends grace to others as well. Because no one deserves it. I pray that all of us in this room will be home for Christmas. Home to our God. Home to His embrace. And I pray that whenever we gather with our families over the coming days and weeks, that there will be true joy and deep, deep love as we celebrate the Father's love. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment. The musicians are going to come forward. I'll be here at the front. If there's anything that I may pray with you about or encourage you in, it's always my joy to be a pastor to you. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you, and we thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Thank you, Father, that you extend grace to undeserving people like me. And I thank you, Father, that I have been the recipient of that which I did not earn. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to also extend grace to others. And Lord, I pray. I pray for the 
lost son that sits in the room today, the lost daughter, that today may be a day of turning and coming home. I pray for the hurting father, the hurting mother, that you will give wisdom to know what to do, to know when to say no, to know when to say yes. I pray, Lord, that you might, that you may allow us as parents to model the grace that you have extended to us. Help us, Lord, never to get caught up in the tentacles of entitlement. But help us to be genuinely happy when we see your grace expanding to others. And Lord, I pray that in these days when we sing carols and give gifts and say I love you, when we travel home and we see family, I pray for deep, deep joy, deep love, for laughter to be upon our lips, for grace to be in our home, for the lights of the tree, the gifts to remind us of your light and your gifts. And may we rejoice in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we worship from the depths of our heart. Amen.